Yes, Pete, it really is. If not, there are lots of Airbnbs locally. Um, great, okay, so um, we are going to start our talk. So we are in our second week in a series in Ephesians. And so there was a famous preacher, R- Richard um, um, quoted him last week, a guy called Martin Lloyd-Jones, very famous preacher, who took eight years to preach through the book of Ephesians. He went through verse by verse, week by week, um, but I think sometimes he spent two or three weeks on the same verse. I feel sorry for his church congregation. Um, we're doing it in six weeks, so it will not be fine detail painting. It's going to be like we're going to get the roller out, yeah, and just get through it quickly. Um, but whilst we're doing that, because we're not going to cover the whole thing, I'm not even covering the whole of chapter two today. Whilst we're doing that, please can I encourage you to get your favourite drink, find your favourite spot in the house, and spend 20 to 30 minutes reading through the book of Ephesians. It really will not take you long at all. Because the thing to remember about a lot of the New Testament is that they were written as letters. He didn't write, Paul, when he wrote Ephesians, didn't get to the end of like a few sentences and go, right, chapter two. He didn't do that. He just wrote this letter. And then what's happened is, is over time, somebody has divided up scripture to help us find verses in it. So read it as a complete letter because then you'll start to see it in a different light. Does that make sense? It'll help you understand it. Please, can I encourage you to do that? So this was a letter. It's the first thing to remember. This was a letter. It was written by Paul, the apostle, to the church in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, um, that he himself had helped to plant. So if you read Acts 18 and 19, you will find that he had kind of got there with this apostolic power couple, Priscilla and Aquila, um, and that they planted this church in Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the three largest cities in the Roman Empire. It was um, third only to Alexandria and Rome. It was cosmopolitan and multi-ethnic. People had gathered from across the Roman Empire and beyond. So verses that I'm not covering today, but we we're going to cover in a series later on this year, talk all about if you are in Christ, then it changes how you relate to people who don't look like you, who aren't from the same background as you. And so everything I'm saying today is in that context, actually, that as we step into a relationship with Jesus, it affects the way that we behave and how we relate to others around us. It's so important that we learn, this is totally aside, that we learn to be a community who walks across the room and says hello to people and get to know people who don't look, think or act like us that are different. And that's the problem they had in Ephesus, right? This was a multi, like, just, there was multi everything in this, in this environment. And the thing that had happened was, is as these groups had arrived at Ephesus, they'd brought their faiths with them, their cultures with them, their religious practices with them. Ephesus, it's, it's thought to have over 50 different gods or goddesses that were worshipped regularly. And this had led to widespread syncretism. So what's syncretism? This is, I'm trying to not use too many long words today. This is one of, I think, three long words. Syncretism is the combination of different forms of belief or practice. It's combining things together. And this is very reminiscent of our Western modern culture. We are, a, in, even in this room, a, a diverse mix of cultures and ethnicities. But also wider than in this room, there is a wide mix of faiths on offer in our society. In our society, many people will cherry-pick the different aspects of different faith practices they like, and they'll add them together to create something syncretistic. So something that's been moulded together out of different things. So Ephesus was a city of many religions. But underneath it, there was a subculture of magic and mysticism. It was the centre of magical and spiritual practice in the region. Most prominently, it was the centre of worship to a goddess called Artemis. Can we show that photograph of her, if that's all right? So 
just to say that the, the bags are not breasts, okay? So, <laughs> I knew you were going to think it, Anna. Um, <laughs> on some goddesses, they would have multiple breasts, and that would be a, a goddess of fertility. But on this goddess, Artemis, these bags, they think, are representative of magical practices. This goddess carried magical practice with her. She was the god of magic as much as she was the god of goddess of the heavens as well. The goddess of these things. Um, the temple Artemis of Artemis was, it was in Ephesians, it, it was in Ephesus, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was a month named after her. There were festivals dedicated to her. So if you lived in, in Ephesus, you wouldn't be able to escape her influence in your life. So with all this context, it helps us gain a fuller meaning to the book of Ephesians. Let me just give you an example of this. In chapter 1, verse 21, Paul writes this. Jesus is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. What's he talking about? He's talking about all the other names that are invoked locally in, in Ephesus. All the other gods and goddesses that would have been named and, and called out to. Paul is saying... Jesus is far above those other names that are invoked. We read it, we, don't, we miss the context if we're not careful. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. You see, Paul is directly pointing towards syncretism and the worship of Artemis and other gods and goddesses and magical practices, and he is making a profound claim of truth. That Jesus is the one who has all authority. And we're going to find this again as we go through, journey through Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10 together this morning. And it starts like this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived at, among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and the following of its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's God's angry punishment against sin. That's what wrath is. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that nobody could boast. For we are God's handiwork, or workmanship, depending on what version of the Bible you've got. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is perhaps one of the most famous passages in the New Testament that talks about salvation. And it's where the reformers, um, the, the, uh, during the Reformation came up with this phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. In fact, Richard mentioned this as a throwaway comment last week. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack what these, this means. Because you might hear this and you might think, what on, earth is, what on earth is he talking about? What is the world, the flesh, and the devil? So let's look at this together this morning. You see, Paul here in these verses is painting a picture that there are three types of bondage that hold us imprisoned and we need Jesus to come and free us from them. It's like this rope here. These aren't just on the stage for no reason, by the way. Um, it's like this rope. Uh, unfortunately, you can't actually see the core of it, but this rope is made up of three strands. 
Yeah, you'll know if you look at a piece of rope, sometimes it's made up of multiple strands. This rope has got three strands. And Paul says, just like this rope, I could tie you up with this rope. What happens is, is the world, the flesh and the devil have got you captive. It's like I could sit you here and tie you up with this rope and, and hold you captive to it. And Paul says that the world, the flesh and the devil hold people captive. So what are they then? What are these three things? What is the world? Is it just the world? I mean, like, is it, what is it exactly? Paul writes that before Jesus, we followed the ways of the world. Here he's talking about external elements that impinge upon us, things outside of our control that shape how we think and act. There are things in your life, there's nothing, you can't do anything about it. There are controlling factors in your life. The, the news that you open on, on the morning, that whatever it is, the conversation you have, there are external factors that influence how you think and behave. For the Ephesians, this would have been all of the other religions in their city. If you walked out of your house and you saw the worship of Artemis and you, you got up on the, the, in the month, you know, got up and you realized it's the first day of the month of Artemis, you know, it, it would have impacted your life all the time. The world is the external worldviews, the external beliefs that we are influenced by. The world is other belief systems, other religions, other ideologies, other cultural values. But it's also more than that as well. For us, it's peer pressure, fashion, the media. It's secular ways of thinking about life. All of these are the world. When Paul writes the world, he is referring to these things. You see, external influences that give us a way of living totally apart from God. You and I are constantly bombarded with the thinking of the world. And... Rather than liberating, Paul says that the world becomes a form of imprisonment to us. It's the first strand in this rope that holds us tight. The second part isn't something external. It's something internal. It's called the flesh. And this is the, the Greek word sarx, and Paul mentions this throughout the New Testament. The flesh. The flesh is what's in us that is directed out from us. So the first one's the world. The world is things that impact us. They come into our lives, and they, they affect us from external to internal. The flesh is the internal to the external. It's things within us. It's our desires for more, our personal satisfaction, power, fame, glory, money, all of those things. They come from within us. They're not from outside. They're things that are in very, uh, our very hearts. We don't need to blame others for the, our behavior. It's things that come directly from us. Jesus says that it's not the things in us. Sorry, it's not the things that we take in that make us unclean, but it's the things that come out of you that make you unclean. We ourselves, without the help of anything else, are the second rope in the bondage that holds us. Part of it is us, ourselves, that we need freeing from. No matter how you, perfect you try to make your life look on Instagram, the truth is your internal self is corrupt and in need of Jesus. And there's a third strand to our rope. And we don't talk about the devil enough, so I'm going to spend some time talking about the devil. Um, I think it's important that we know our enemy. And so I just want to talk about this briefly this morning. Here in Ephesians 2, Paul refers to the devil as the ruler of the, the realm of the air. So what does that mean? Well, the air is the spiritual atmosphere. As I said earlier, we live in a syncretistic culture. You can believe whatever you like in our culture, providing that it doesn't offend anybody else. And secondly, for the majority of the society, that means not seeing humanity as inherently broken, as we would preach as Christians, but seeing humanity is inherently actually quite good. And what we really need as society is just to progress a little bit more. So this kind of idea pervades our culture. We also 
On the other hand, so that's the first thing. We live in this kind of syncretism where you can believe what you want to believe, take different views from different people and bring them together. That's the first thing. The second thing is we live in a naturalistic culture. That is to say that we can discover everything through science and scientific exploration. So these two things are bedrock elements of the society that we live in. For Christians, the effect of knowing that and living in a culture where these things are true, it has two effects in our lives when we come to talk about the supernatural, particularly when we talk about the devil. We either we, we, we end up, well, we do both, actually. We end up downplaying and minimising sin. So the idea that you could possibly offend God in our culture has become almost ridiculous and obscene. Well, that offends me. You can't believe you'd say that I would do something that God wouldn't like. God's love. God loves me. So that would be something very much uh, uh, clear in our culture. The second one would be to downplay any teaching on the devil. We don't want to talk about the devil because it seems ridiculous. So briefly, let's just talk about the devil. The devil is a spirit, not a force. He's a real, intelligent, supernatural being. Contrary to the film, he does not wear Prada, okay? (laughs) And he does not look like this. But he uses... A comical view of himself and secular media, like the devil wears Prada, to reinforce that idea that surely the devil can't be real. Because what a silly idea. Does that make sense? What, like, who could believe in this? Well, of course they couldn't believe in that. It's absolute nonsense. That's not what the devil looks like. He doesn't walk around with a silly tail. That's not what God looks like. Sorry, what the devil looks like. I don't know what God looks like. <laughs> he uses this idea... He uses the idea to make himself more laughable to us. But if you were to read the Bible, you won't go far before you find the devil at work. You get to Genesis 3, there's the devil. Jesus talks about the devil all the time. Jesus is tempted by Satan in the desert. It means accuser, Satan does, okay? And so where do we get our main teaching on who Satan is? In Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, we find these prophecies about these two kings. And if you start to dig into these prophecies, you see that both Isaiah and Ezekiel aren't really prophesying about a human king. They're prophesying about a, spirit, a spiritual force. They're prophesying about Satan himself. Satan was an angel who, before God, before God created the world, had set himself up against God. He was beautiful. He was powerful. And he believed that he should be the object of all of heaven's worship. And so what God does to Satan is exactly what he does to Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve... Um, they sin and God casts them out of his presence because he can't have anything unholy in his presence. Well, he does the same with Satan. Satan sets himself up against God, so God casts him out of heaven. Satan stands against God and he seeks to undermine and usurp God's purposes. A, a big misconception is that the devil and the demonic live in hell. Maybe you, maybe you believe that or you've been taught to believe that. That is not true. Hell is the place that is reserved for the devil and his angels. It's the place of punishment for them. That you and I will go to with them if we don't know Jesus. It's the place of punishment. Jesus will send the devil and his, and his angels with him to hell when he comes back in victory. But right now, as we see what Peter, Peter speaks about, the devil roams the earth like a lion looking for people to devour. We see this in the start of Job as well. The devil wanders the earth. Jesus says that the devil is the father of lies. The devil will always claim to know more about God than what he has himself revealed. We see this when he tries to tempt Jesus. He will always disguise himself as a way of winning your trust. He works through the world, through secular teaching, 
through ideologies, through false religions, and through, through secular thinking. The devil and, his, and the demonic seek to turn your focus away from the living God, away from God's purposes. He's always seeking ways to divert the attention of humanity away from God. He is not the equal opposite of God. So this is another misconception, because that's, this is my second long word, dualism. Dualism is the idea that God has an opposing opposite. So yin-yang, have you seen that circle? Yeah? So there's a black side, there's a white side. There's good and there's bad, in equal measure. This is not what the Bible teaches about Satan. He is not opposite to God. He is a created being, created by God. So therefore, he has not got the same equal value to God. He is finite, and he is also operating from a losing position. Yeah? So, I don't know if you've ever watched a boxing match, and sometimes you just know who's going to win. There's the person who's absolutely demolishing the other person, and for a while, the other person carries on fighting. And you go, they're going to lose. You just, everybody knows they're going to lose. The devil is the same. He's operating from a losing position, but that doesn't mean that he can't punch hard. He is destined for defeat. The demonic and the work of the devil is very, very real. And as Christians, the danger is we end up at one of two ends of extremes. Some of us pretend that Satan and his demons aren't real or not possibly interested in us. In fact, there's a whole stream of teaching now in what's called progressive Christianity. The idea that actually Satan's just an idea. The devil's just an idea. That's not true. He's real. Jesus claimed he was real. Jesus was tempted by him. This is not just a story. This is what happened. So we need to, and we need to take hold of that. Because if we believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, we must also believe all the other things as well. So that's one thing we can do. We can almost pretend that it's not real. And we can almost say, well, he's the demonic and never going to be interested in me, lowly little old me. On the other hand, some of us will use the devil as an excuse for everything that goes wrong in our lives. And we, we use him as an excuse for not taking any personal responsibility. When we choose to engage in simple behaviour, we go, oh, it's just the devil making me do it. But in reality, it's just us giving ourselves over to what we want to do. So in summation, the devil is powerful and dangerous. And also the world is powerful and dangerous. Our desires, our, our flesh is powerful and dangerous. And all of these things are this rope that ties you up if you don't know Jesus. And it binds you. There is no way of escaping this rope. When I was growing up, I used to go fishing with my dad. My dad's a trout fisherman. And we would be, my dad would be casting his line out and catching fish. And he'd send me off with a little rod. And the first cast, every time, I'd always get caught in a tree. Or I'd catch a branch or something like that. You know, like you fling it into the water and you pull up sort of weeds from the bottom. And, and it would come out. And, and as the line would come out, it would get itself tangled in a massive knot. And I, I swear, I, honestly, I swear I spent more time as a child fishing actually untangling knots than I did of actually catching any fish. I would be there for hours trying to unpick these knots. It would drive you, you know when you get frustrated with it? I don't know if you do it with headphones now. I do it all the time. And you try and start untangling the headphone and it just makes it worse and worse. This is what Paul, exactly what Paul's talking about in this, in this passage. He's saying that if you try and work on the problem of, re of, of releasing yourself from the grip of the world, the flesh, and the devil yourself, you will end up with a worse knot. What you need is you need Jesus to come along and save you by his grace. He takes a massive pair of heavenly scissors and he cuts this in your life and he does it at the cost of his own life for you. You're not saved by works, trying to untangle the knot yourself, but you're saved as a gift of God's grace over your life. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that we believe. 
You see, my works end up making the knot worse, but Jesus frees me from the knot. By grace, you've been saved. But, you know, Jesus doesn't just save you from the rope. He doesn't just free you from it. What he does is he actually takes you from your position and he repositions you. This is what Paul says here in this scripture, and I just want to just emphasize this to you. Because what he does is he takes you from a position of being entangled in sin, and now what he does is he seats you with Jesus in heavenly places. This is what happens as you become a Christian. You go from being tied up in a rope to being seated on the throne in heaven, spiritually speaking, with Jesus. So you go from a position of being under somebody else's authority to a position of being given authority. That's what happens when you become a Christian. Why? Why does God do that? First of all, that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace because of what he's done. You go, look at my life. I was tied up by the world, the sin, and the, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But now look where I'm seated. Look at God's grace that I've become a son or a daughter, that I'm free from this stuff. That's the first thing. God wants to show his grace through you. The second, he wants you to be somebody who takes authority, who carries and proclaims the kingdom that sets people free. Because you now, seated on this place, seated in this place of authority, can say, no, Jesus is the one who frees you. I know it. I can testify to it. I was there. Now I'm here. And that's who God calls us to be. He says in verse 10, Paul says, we're God's handiwork, created for, in Christ Jesus to do good works. What are the good works that you've been created to do? You're created to be a, a visible demonstration of the kingdom of God. You're called to love and think and act like Jesus. That's who we're called to be. That's, we're called to sit on this throne of authority and take responsibility. But there's a danger. The danger is, is that whilst we're sitting on this throne of authority, we look back over at the rope and we think, gosh, that rope that just looks really good. Actually, it doesn't look that bad. I really quite, I quite like the rope. And we look at it and we think, mm, maybe, maybe I'll just go and have a look at the rope again. And so we lean over and we start looking at it. And, and it doesn't come long before we're starting to play with the rope, like, cat, like a cat does. And we start getting ourselves, maybe we get ourselves entangled in it again. And we've come off the seat of authority and we start getting ourselves entangled with the world, the flesh, and the devil again. The Israelites do this. They, they leave Egypt. They're in a point of slavery in Egypt. They come out of Egypt. They become God's people. God claims them for his own. He says, you're my people. And so they walk out into the desert. And then they get fed up with eating quail and manna. And they say, surely it'd be better to go back to Egypt. We do this in our lives. We get off the seat of authority and we go back to the rope again. We can allow things in our lives which place us back under bondage. We can engage in forms of syncretism, wanting both our faith in Jesus, both the authority that would be given in Jesus, but also while still quite liking the voice of the devil, quite liking the way of the flesh, quite liking the values of our culture. Let me give you an example of this uh, as, I, as, I, as I draw to a close from from Acts and from Ephesians. So this is from Acts 19. So this is, the, this is what happens in Ephesus. Just, I really want to just drive this home. Some Jews, this is from verse 13, some Jews went around driving out evil spirits and they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day an evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? 
Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I always think that's a really funny like, image in your head. <laughs> they run away. But actually, that event causes terror and fear. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came openly and confessed what they had done. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, it, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. You look up what that's worth. In the same way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So... You might not have noticed this in this story, and I could preach a whole message on this, but I'm going to speak about this for a minute. We've got this group of Jewish brothers. They are going around invoking the name of Jesus, but they have no authority to do so. They are individuals who are still tied up under the oppression of the world, the flesh, and the devil, but they're claiming to have an authority that is only reserved for those who are in Christ. So as they go to cast the demon out, the demon says, I don't know who you are. I'm just going to beat you up. Because they've got no authority. But what happens is they do that because they're involved in syncretism. Yeah, They're involved in taking their faith and trying to add Jesus to it. That's what's happening. And then what happens is the church, believers in the church, they look at their own lives and they think, flipping heck, we're seated over here, but we're doing that as well. But we're going in the other direction. And they go, we're seated in Jesus, but we're still, we've still got magical stuff in our houses. We're seated in Jesus, but I'm still praying to the Artemis. I'm seated in Jesus, but I'm doing X, Y, or Z. And they burn everything. And they say, no, we need to be seated in Jesus and get rid of this other stuff in our lives. The believers had a wake-up moment. They realized they'd walked back towards slavery again. So what's your response this morning? Well, I think there's, first of all, there's got to be a response here this morning for you if you don't know Jesus. The Bible says that you can be freed in an instant from the knot of, the, a knot of sin. You can be freed in an instant from the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil over you. And Jesus will come along and save you from it. And you just have to say, Jesus, save me. And he goes, okay. And all of a sudden, there's like this instantaneous thing that happens. That all of us, This is what the Bible teaches. That as soon as you do that, you become seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. It's like a transaction occurs. You go from here to here, like that. And you can do that this morning. That's the first thing. Secondly, and I think this will relate to more of us this morning, are you dabbling? Are you dabbling? Maybe it's allowing the values and the ideas of the world around you to lead you. Maybe it's just, ah, oh, I know I'm seated in Christ Jesus. I just love being on Instagram. And I'm going to do X, Y, or Z to get that Instagram lifestyle at home. Maybe you're allowing the world's values to lead you. Maybe you're seated in Christ, but you're starting to... Just read and, and read stuff that's kind of really just secular ideologies. Maybe that's what you're doing. That's the first one. Secondly, maybe you know that you're engaged in a sinful pattern of behavior. You're over here. You're seated in Christ Jesus. But over there you're going, oh, gosh, I just, I, I love being seated in Christ Jesus. I just love pornography too. So I'm just going to carry on just watching that stuff in my evenings. It doesn't really matter. It's not going to matter. I know I'm seated here. But I'm just going to have a little look. And it's still happening. You are being tied again into a rope that Jesus needs to set you free from. So that's the second one. Maybe you're, that's you this morning. Maybe you're tying yourself up with something that is uh, not of God. And then the third one, and as I was preparing this this week, I felt more and more strongly about sharing this. Um, that, and I knew that as soon as I, I, as knew, as soon as I, I, I committed to doing this and I started praying about it, I started hitting spiritual attack this week. So last night, to give you an example, 
So, sorry, we're chatting about this as worship leaders recently. Um, and the worship team said, you know, when they lead worship, they feel that, you know, and I would agree with this as a worship leader, the, the, le- the week leading up to leading worship, you can feel like your life's under spiritual attack because you know that you're about to lead people into God's presence and we've got an enemy. So things just happen out of the ordinary in a week that you're leading worship. So pray for our worship team. And things happen as a preacher when, you're, when I'm about to preach. Something always happens that run up to the preach. And I always say to Claire, it's because I'm preaching on Sunday. Um, as a church leader, I live under spiritual attack. Like, honestly, like I just do. Things that happen to me, you're like, oh, flipping it. Like, like last night, um, our children just would not settle. They would not go to sleep last night. Bearing on, we've got a nine and a six-year-old. It was half 11 before they were both asleep last night. It's spiritual attack. And the reason it was spiritual attack yesterday is because I've got an enemy that doesn't want me to pray for you to be released from spiritual bondage. And that's what we're going to do in a minute. Because I really believe that there are some people here today, um, and like the Ephesians, you are engaging in other aspects of other faiths, and you're trying to add them into Christianity. Also, I think there are people here, maybe you don't even know that you're doing it, you're engaging in magic and witchcraft. And I'm not talking about card tricks. Um, Neil Granger is is a magician. I'm not talking about that. Um, I'm talking about Ouija boards. I'm talking about tarot cards, birthstones, palm reading, astrology. Maybe you just like to do that stuff, or maybe you've been doing that stuff recently. Maybe you've even gone to a spiritualist to try and get, get in contact with the dead. All of these things are things that God says are wrong. and they are What they are is they're forms of worship of Satan, because what happens is, is that he gains worship through them. And so magical practice in, in particular really felt just called to pray for you this morning. See, every other narrative other than the narrative of you being seated in Christ is a false gospel narrative. That is a false gospel narrative. That that will ever bring you joy is false. So what we're going to do is I'm going to pray two prayers. The first one I'm going to pray, if you invite to pray, pray with me in your heart, which is just to say, I want to follow Jesus as my king. And the second one, I'm going to pray for release for some people this morning. And there's no, I'm not going to do anything like, you know, I'm not going to get some garlic out or anything like that. We don't need to do that. Because do you know why we don't need to do that? And we don't need to be frightened of the demonic because we're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We've been given authority. So we just say, no, go away in the name of Jesus. So we're going to do that in a second too. So let's just pray first of all. So if you're not a Christian and you want to pray a prayer, just join me. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Jesus, I thank you that you died to bear the punishment of my sin on yourself and to free me from my sin. Jesus, would you forgive me now? Jesus, come break the knot of the world, the flesh, and the devil over my life right now. Jesus, I choose to follow you today. Jesus, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I might know that I'm sealed with an inheritance that will never change. Jesus, I choose to follow you today. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, come and speak to me at the end. I'd love to talk to you about Jesus. Secondly, I'm going to pray for you now. If you feel that, and I'm just going to pray for you, but before I do that, I'm just going to say something else to you. If you know that it's you, and it might be even something so small as you bought a necklace and it's got a birthstone on it, or something like that, and you just know the Holy Spirit is convicting you of it right now. Okay, I'm not trying to convict you. The Holy Spirit will do that. Okay, But it, whatever it is, it might be that you know that there's... like. So one of the things I do, if anybody ever puts anything through my post or my letterbox for other faiths or other, relig- other kind of things, or, or like cults, it goes straight out in the recycling outside. Maybe you've got books on your bookshelf that you know they just need to be gotten rid of. And I think for you, after I've prayed this prayer, you need to go home and do the work of just getting rid of it. Have a fire this afternoon. It's cold. Enjoy it. Yeah? 
Burn it. Get rid of it. Get out of your life. Don't, whatever you do, give it to somebody else. Get rid of it. Okay? But I'm going to pray for you to, for, for a bit of release. So, Lord Jesus, right now, we, I just, I, in the name of Jesus, I come against anything in anyone's life right now that is not the way of Jesus. And we speak right now, I, I speak against the demonic in people's lives, and I speak against this spirit of the devil, whether it's in witchcraft or magic practices, and in the name of Jesus, I pray freedom right now from it. I speak freedom today over these lives. Lord, anyone here, thank you, they do not live under condemnation, but they live under the grace of God, and so we speak freedom over them right now, and we do not want to leave these houses empty. So Holy Spirit, we pray right now, come and fill lives right now with your power and with your goodness. Lord, that people might know the true and living God in them. So we pray freedom and release in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you want more prayer for those things, please come and speak to me.